the last few verses of 1 Timothy, starting with verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, hope, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You may be seated. I kind of struggle with taking these big chunks of scripture. Um, but again, there's a reason, a theme, a method of my madness. So we'll, we'll push through and get to the end of this letter today. So in the first Timothy today, we'll uh, start into Titus next week, Lord willing. And then after Titus, we'll go into second Timothy and we're looking at where to go from there, probably dip into an Old Testament book or two and then come back into uh, New Testament, either uh, gospel book, epistle, something. We're still struggling with that. But right now we're going to finish the end of First Timothy. And just a quick review of where we've been there. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, whom he had left in Ephesus, and he said, so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so doctrine becomes a theme that we, goes all the way through here. Timothy is sent there to deal with doctrinal and behavioral issues in the church at Ephesus, especially dealing with the leaders, the elders, those who are teaching things they ought not to be teaching and to address people doing things they ought not to be doing. And, and this, this book is doctrine-heavy. There's a call to prayer for all people. There's qualifications for overseers and deacons. There's the mystery of godliness. Uh, chapter 3, we saw our theme, by the way. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul there is saying, I want you to know how you should conduct yourselves in the church, which is the household of God. He told us that some would depart from the faith. He talked about what it meant to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He gave instructions on how to interrelate to one another, how to treat older men, younger men, older women, younger women, how to honor widows, how to honor elders. Um, he talked about how to be a, a good slave, how to be a good master. And last week, as we looked at that, we talked about true contentment as we went through the end of verse 10 of chapter 6. So today we come to verse 11, and again, by the grace of God, we'll finish the letter today as we start here in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, 
gentleness. Well, when your passage starts with but, it's only right to go back and look at what's being contrasted here, not this but that. So we saw at the end of last week's passage an all too often misquoted saying of the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And Paul went on to say that through craving money, desiring riches, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, he begins today. And as we finish this letter, this is the last charge that Paul's going to give to Timothy in this communication. And like we said, he'd left Timothy there in Ephesus to correct the doctrinal issues and the behavioral issues and to do it primarily through removing and or rebuking those leaders who weren't teaching the impure, incorrect doctrine and keeping in in step with that theme of how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. In this last part, Paul's going to personally charge Timothy with how to be different, how to be set apart, how to be holy. And that's going to kind of be the thread that runs through all of this and draws it all together in one coherent thought. So, many have chased money and even fallen away because of their love of it. But as for you, Timothy, don't do that. Don't be like them. And can you just imagine the uncertainty of coming into a situation, Timothy, not from Ephesus, gets sent to this church to handle things, to shake things up, to remove people, and there's got to be this question in his mind of, what if they don't support me financially? What if, I don't, what, if I, what if I can't make a living? Paul says, don't be like them. Don't pursue money. And I love how he refers to Timothy here. But as for you, O man of God. We've said many times through this letter that Timothy was probably reserved, a little timid, even physically sick. Take a little wine for your stomach and your, your infirmities, which pop up all the time, basically, is what Paul said there. So maybe even physically weak. But Paul encourages him here. And calls him man of God. And I'm afraid we've hijacked that phrase in our culture to refer to preachers only. The preacher is the man of God. Hogwash. I know me. But in Christ we are all man of God. In Christ we are all woman of God. Paul's not singling Timothy out as the preacher as the only man of God there, but he's encouraging Timothy by reminding him of his position in Christ. Timothy is a man of God. And as for this man of God, Paul tells him to flee and to pursue. Don't chase money, but flee those things that relate to desiring wealth and earthly treasure. Flee them. The word for flee is a fun Greek word. It's fioigo, fioigo. Apparently, it says, it's a, uh, it has a Greek past. I started reading the definition too early there. Uh, to flee away, to seek safety by flight, to shun or avoid by flight, to avoid something abhorrent, especially vices, to be saved by flight, to escape safely out of danger to flee away or to vanish. Now note that. This is not saying to kind of meander or mosey. No, it's a call to run for your life. The desire and pursuit of riches is dangerous, Timothy. We talked about that last week. So get, hightail it out of there, out of those desires for riches for your own self-preservation. This is dangerous stuff, so run from it. Flee it. And the verb tense for flee is present active imperative, meaning it's a command to be doing it now, and it's always now. Don't ever stop fleeing the desire for riches. Flee. Run. But don't just run away blindly, not knowing where you're going. Instead, rather, pursue something. Flee this, pursue this. Or in this case, some things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And those six things could literally be individual messages in and of themselves. We'll just do a quick flyover on them. 
But it would make a great self-study to investigate this list in depth on your own. So pursue righteousness. Righteousness is integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Godliness is piety, respect toward God. Faith is conviction of the truth of something, belief in something. Love is all you need. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's something else. Love is a right concern for God and others above yourself. Steadfastness is described as the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. And gentleness is meekness, mildness, and the best definition of it is strength under control. Pursue those things. Flee from the desire for wealth and riches and pursue these things. And that word pursue means to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing. To run after, to press on. Figuratively of one who in a race runs swiftly to reach the goal. Make those six characteristics the goal of your life and run swiftly. Press on toward them. And like the word flee... The word pursue is also in the present active imperative mood, which means it's a thing that you are to do and keep on doing. Flee from the pursuit of gain or wealth, and in your fleeing away, run toward these six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. But fleeing and pursuing aren't all that Timothy's called to do. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So flee, pursue. Then Paul tells Timothy to fight and to take hold of in this verse. Fight the good fight of the faith. The Greek here is fantastic. It's agonizomai ho kalos agon. Agonize the agony. It's that intense. Fight the good fight. Agonize the agony. There are two kinds of Christians in the world today. Those who know they are in a spiritual battle and those who don't. And it's not a question of whether there's a war going on or not. It's a question of do we realize it and are we fighting or not? Paul commands Timothy, the man of God... To fight the good fight of the faith. He'll compare believers to good soldiers when we get into 2 Timothy. And that's an apt description of our lives. We're soldiers. And soldiers are under orders. Soldiers are under authority. And soldiers fight their enemies. The good fight of the faith is to battle, to walk by faith and not by sight, to wage war on the forces of evil, to wrestle and wrangle with spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6. Which it's interesting, Ephesians 6 is written to who? The Ephesian church. This same church that Timothy is ministering to here. Later, Paul will write the letter to the Ephesians telling them to fight the good fight as well. In Ephesians 6. We'll talk more about that later. Fight that fight, Timothy. Not infighting and biting and devouring one another. And boy, we're apt and prone to that, aren't we? But fight the good fight of the faith. And then there's the call to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold is a big, long Greek word that I won't try and, and, and butcher But it means to lay hold of or seize something with the hands. Grab it and hold on to it. Take it into your possession. And what's Timothy to grab and hold? I love this. The eternal life to which he was called. Grab life by the eternal scope of it. Eternal life doesn't just mention the length of the life, but it also refers to the quality of that life. It has no end for sure, but it also has no measurements. And the word life here in eternal life is zoe, and it means God life. 
So this eternal life is God life, that super abundant, overflowing, more life than we can contain kind of life. Take hold of that, Timothy. And notice that he was called to that life. Well, who called him to that life? God himself called Timothy to that life. God said, I'm calling you to it. And here Paul says, take hold of it. And Timothy verified being called into that life by making the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, you could read a lot of different commentaries and get a lot of different descriptions of what that confession in the presence of many witnesses means. I'm just going to give you what I think. Okay, This is just not the gospel, but this passage according to Jason. I think it refers to him making a profession of faith, probably even his baptism, which externally verifies the internal calling to others in a public way. Listen, the Christian life is a publicly testified to life. Timothy could walk around the rest of his life going, I know God called me to eternal life and I know I'm to take hold of it. But we live life in the friendly witnesses, and we live life in the presence of these witnesses here. So that's why we baptize. It's for somebody to make a public profession. That's why when we have weddings, we say, these witnesses. We call people to witness what we're saying we want to do. What has happened in our lives. It is a public, confessional Let's do this together with these witnesses kind of life. The Christian life, marriage, these types of things are public things. They're not a private thing that you exercise in your inner room only. And these witnesses testify back to us of what we said we were going to do, of who God is and what God said He would do. Make a public profession. Live your life, your marriage, your individual life, your work in the presence of many witnesses who are there to encourage you and help you. So Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I just think that's his, hey, I've been born again. I'd like to be baptized to testify to that. That's just my personal opinion. And again, the world's not going to end if you disagree with me there. It's all right. I mean, you'll be wrong, but that's all right, too. Now, watch this. This next four-verse block. Which, again, I'd love to split it up, but it's just so good taken together. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But we just need to read that every day, I think. Mm. Goodness gracious, these four verses. Again, I wanted to cover this last passage as one for a few reasons, but I almost didn't just because there's so much here in these four mega-packed powerhouse verses. But this four-verse section is really the theme of all of this last section. And there's a value to taking all of this section as one thought in the midst of this outro of the letter. So Paul has just challenged Timothy to flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. All aggressive, action-centered imperatives. And he had called Timothy man of God. Well, here in verses 13 to 16, we get a picture of the God in the man of God title. Which is really the most important part. It's not you're a man of God, it's you're a man of God. And watch this. What a picture. Paul starts this benedictive section by using another strong action word to call Timothy into action. I charge you, he says. Charge means to command, to order. We've seen it before in this letter. And before we see this picture of God, let's look what, at what that charge, the command is. I charge you, then verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So the charge is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Again, it's widely debated as to what is meant by the commandment. It could refer to the whole of the teachings from Paul to Timothy, 
or maybe what has been commanded in this letter, or the gospel itself, which is a command, by the way. The gospel is not a free offer if you want it. The gospel is a command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, my take, I really think the commandment refers to the charge of Jesus to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is one imperative in this commission. It's not go. It's not baptize. It's not teaching. The command is to make disciples of all nations. And we keep that commandment. We keep that charge by going, baptizing, and teaching. And I really think that's what Paul's referring here to Timothy. Herb Hodges called it the church's only marching orders. The doctrine that makes up the teaching of the commission is what Paul has been so hawkish about through this whole letter. So guard the doctrine in order to keep the commandment teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, Jesus said. So guard the doctrine in order to keep the commandment and keep it unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unstained and free from reproach. Don't change it and don't let it come under attack from inside or outside. Why? Because it's about God. It's about Christ Himself, all that He was, all that He did, all that He taught. And the doctrine tells us who God is, what God has done, and what God commands us to do. And God is clearly seen in these verses here in 1 Timothy 6. I want you to dig in. I want to dig in with you and see what Paul says about God here in these verses. Let me go back here. So let's go back to 13. And we're going to go through 13 through 16, and we're just going to pull out... What Paul says about God here. And it's amazing. So first, he says God gives life to all things. Now don't rush over that. God gives life to all things. You want to know who God is? He's the life giver. If there is life, it came from and will come from God Himself. God is the source of life. That's something to think about. Right? So God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now Jesus in his human life, God in the flesh, stood before an earthly ruler, Pontius Pilate. And what good confession is Paul referring to here? Jesus didn't say a whole lot to Pilate, which had to infuriate Pilate, and it did. But look at, oh, do I have it? Yes, I do. John 18, 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Jesus answered questions with questions so many times. It had to drive people crazy. Pilate answered, Am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And watch this. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus made a good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. In our picture of God, in the person of Christ here, we see a beautiful, wonderful, good confession of who God the Son is. Are you a king? You say I'm a king. And my kingdom is not of this world. And I have come to bear witness to the truth. That's a pretty good witness that Jesus bore before Pontius Pilate there. So God, who gives life to all things, 
Christ Jesus, who made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Then we see a mention of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thinking about who God is, right? The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So, in thinking about God, who he is, he's coming at the proper time. The God-man is coming back to earth. His good confession got him killed in his first advent. But his second advent will be as the Lord Jesus Christ in tangible, literal form. And it will come at the proper time. And whose timing is that? In God's time. God's the giver of all life. He's the Lord Jesus Christ who made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming back at the God-appointed time. But that's not all. Oh boy, we're about to get to it now. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Shame on us for not loving this truth. He is the blessed and the only sovereign. Who am I going to tell them sent me, Moses said. You tell them I am sent you. And I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll show grace to whom I show grace to. And that is my glory. I am sovereign. In our self-edifying, defiant, fist-shaking, sinful entity that we are, we shake our fist at the sovereignty of God. But He is the blessed and only sovereign. No one, nothing else is sovereign in the universe. Only God. He's also the king of kings. He is over all. He has all authority. He's the lord of lords. He's the ruler of rulers. The boss of all bosses. He alone has immortality. The everlasting eternal life we partake of comes from God alone. Only God has immortality. He's the very source of life and He's the only one who has immortality. If we are immortal, and we are, Jesus said we'll never die if we place our faith in Him. That's because He has given us His immortality. It says He dwells in unapproachable light. God lives, dwells, exists in unapproachable light. Now what's that mean? It means exactly what it says. You don't need Greek words there. You don't need me meddling with that. God dwells in unapproachable light. God who is spirit is omnipresent. He's literally everywhere. We exist in Him. But the very essence of God, His presence, is glory beyond our comprehension. So we're doing this this um, Bible project reading plan. They kept they keep comparing the holiness of God to the sun, and I'm like, yeah, okay. But the sun's just a little bitty star in a vast big universe. There's like stars out there that are like a hundred thousand times bigger than our sun. So I don't like comparing God to our sun because He's bigger than that, and He dwells in unapproachable. And now we can't. Visit the sun, obviously. We can't go hang out there. And so that part of the picture I like. You can't literally cannot go into the presence of God because the light would not just blind you, it would kill you. Luke read this morning that these guys in the first covenant on Mount Sinai ate in the presence of God. And I love what he said there. Maybe they just couldn't lift their eyes to see him. They just saw the pavement underneath his feet, which was glorious. Redeemed asphalt. I don't know what it was. They just like, I can't can't get past the, the ground he's standing on. They didn't see God, the Father. And note real quick, I'm gonna I wish I had more time to elaborate on this. Paul has no problems whatsoever interchanging God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. 
He'll refer to our only God, Jesus, and he'll talk about God dwelling in unapproachable light. Then he'll mention Christ in the same breath. We, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the physical representation of who God is, but God himself dwells in unapproachable light. God who is spirit, omnipresent, literally everywhere we exist in him, but the very essence of God, his presence is glory beyond our comprehension. He dwells in literally unapproachable light, so whom no one has ever seen or can see. We cannot see God. He's immortal, invisible. God only was. No one will ever see God the Father. Nobody will ever see the Holy Spirit. Because there's spirit, and spirits you can't see. Now we see God in the form of Jesus the Son, God in the flesh. But no one has ever or can see God. Remember back when we started 1 Timothy? I said to think about, dwell on, meditate on, worship the invisibility of God. Wrestle with that some. Because Paul revisits it here in his description of God. And then he says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So as God, and all that we've seen of him here in these verses, he is to be honored and seen as the eternal ruler over his eternal dominion. This God, whom Paul has labored to describe here, is the one the pure doctrine is teaching about, stretching our minds to comprehend. This God is the inspiration and motivation for the man of God. Seeing, knowing, loving, and serving this God. And again, I would encourage you to spend more time in these verses, 13 to 16. Nothing and no one in the world can compare to this God. But we're content to make mud pies in the slum, as C.S. Lewis would say. Nothing and no one can compare. No riches, no joy. Oh, and speaking of that, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. See the theme here? Focus on God, man of God. Focus on God, rich people, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, the rich people are, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold. Oh, heard that before, right? Of that which is truly life. Paul has spoken of money and wealth and the pursuit of them a lot in this letter to Timothy. We spent all last week talking about that and how contentment is with godliness is great gain instead of riches. Ephesus was a wealthy city within the Roman Empire. There were bound to be some very rich people in the church. And remember in what we looked at last week, Paul warned of the dangers of desiring or pursuing wealth, but he did not condemn having wealth in and of itself. Here, he gives directions for those who are rich, and it's pretty specific. Charge them, command them not to be haughty. Don't be proud, arrogant, looking down on those who do not have as much financial wealth as themselves. And wealth can surely make people proud. Arrogant. Paul tells Timothy to command the wealthy. Now, now, note that for a second. Find the people who are wealthy in the congregation. Pick them out and tell them specifically, don't be haughty. Well, like we shouldn't single people out. The heck we shouldn't. You rich people, don't be haughty. Well, we're just one in Christ. It's true, but there's some rich ones in Christ. Address them where they're at. You're rich. Well, I thank you, sir. Don't be haughty. Okay, I will not, sir. Don't be proud, arrogant, looking down on those who don't have as much financial wealth as themselves. Command them not to be arrogant. (laughs) He says to charge them to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Listen, money has a tricky tendency to go away. It sprouts wings and flies away. The stock market crash in 1929 saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average go from a peak of 381 points, which is funny in our day and time because it's a lot higher than that now. But it went from 381 at its peak to 41.22 in just a few months. 
89% loss in a few months. And it would take 25 years to get back up into those high 300 numbers. Riches are uncertain. God commands the rich to not set their hopes on that uncertainty, but rather, what are they to set their hopes on? Set their hopes on God. The rich are to do good. They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. Riches are a means to doing good things. Or they can be. Riches are to, rich people are to share with those who have need. Not to hoard their riches. Not to be loved and clung to. These are mine. If the rich do do good things with their riches, if they are generous and share, they are thus storing up treasure for themselves in heaven. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And Paul echoes that here. And that heavenly treasure is a good foundation for the future in eternity. And in doing all of this, these wealthy brothers and sisters are taking hold of that which is truly life, eternal life. Again, we've already talked about that. That which is truly life. That's how rich folk are to operate. And note he doesn't say, don't be wealthy. Get rid of all your money. He says, use your wealth to help others and build true wealth in eternity. Again, there's no call to poverty as a means of piety. The rich can be godly and the poor can be godly. One is not a sign or blessing while the other is a sign of cursing. The slaves are to be content and the rich are to be generous as they set their minds on God. God has plans and desires for each and every one. Now, I deliberately skipped over a little clause in verses 17 and 19. Look back at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, now watch this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Oh, what? The rich are the focus in this little passage, but they, like all of us, are to set their hopes on God who does what? God richly provides us with everything to bemoan. Oh, woe is me. I can't do anything with that. God richly provides us with everything so that we can see what we're missing. God richly provides us with everything so we can draw back and say, well, that's of the world. Can't have anything to do with that. Oh my goodness, y'all listen. Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Huh. God richly provides us with everything. Now that's quite a statement. But look at why God does that. For us to enjoy. Oh my goodness. I think we run the risk of reducing God down to a killjoy who could not possibly want his ignoble subjects to take pleasure in anything. I can't be pious unless I'm miserable. And we reformed folk are real good at this. You are a worm. Thou art a worm before a holy God. He dangles you as a spider over the flames of hell. Which is true. But here, here we see that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now I want you to sit and think about that for a few seconds. Ponder it, meditate on it, rejoice in it. The creator God who breathed out the words, let there be light, who breathed out life into the nostrils of the big dust ball he formed that we call Adam, he made all that was made and he did so with an inclination toward our enjoyment. Clouds and birds and flowers and sex and food and everything. God's creating and he's thinking, they are going to love this. Oh, look, at they're going to love this. Jason Moore is going to love this. That sounds a little silly, but that's the heart of our God. My goodness gracious, how pleasurable 
it is to listen to these babies this morning. How much I enjoy sitting and watching the body of Christ walk up and partake of this table. How much I love to stand up here and sing and hear y'all worshiping God. I enjoy it. And I'm going to go home today and that old pesky dog's going to be muddy. And we're going to bring him in. I'm going to scratch him behind his ear and he's going to go. And I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to sit down in my recliner. And I'm going to take a nap. And I'm going to enjoy it. They're going to love this, God said. And in our loving these things, in our enjoying all these things, we glorify God by taking pleasure in His creation and thus in Him. He provides us with everything to enjoy. If there is joy, if there's true joy in our lives, its source is the God who gave it to us. The rich and all of us are to remember this. And now finally, the last two verses of the letter, 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Like we've said all through this letter, Paul is calling for special attention to be paid to the doctrine, the true doctrine, the pure doctrine. And he finishes here by appealing once more to that doctrine as of first importance. My early adulthood was spent shaking my fist at doctrine. We don't need doctrine. We just need more of Jesus. You big dummy, how do you think you get more of Jesus? (laughs) By pursuing the doctrine. Oh, I said that a thousand times. We don't need doctrine. We just need Jesus. Okay. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, in a last gasp at the end of his writing this letter, Paul begs Timothy to do what? Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And I would beg us this morning to do the same. Back in 1, 18 to 19, we saw this. This is the beginning of the letter. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So at the beginning of the letter and here at the end of the letter, Timothy is entrusted with a deposit. And that deposit is the good doctrine, the pure doctrine. And he begs him here, guard it, Timothy. How? By avoiding irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I don't think Paul did the air quotes thing, but... (laughs) Guard the doctrine. Guard the good deposit of the doctrine... By avoiding irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Early in the letter, Paul talked about the teachers there in Ephesus majoring in minors, focusing on genealogies, debating the law that they knew nothing about, and generally just missing the whole point of their calling as elders. Here, Paul calls all that pointless junk irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. It's all false. The word for irreverent means profane, common, of men. Babel is vain and useless matters. It's men talking about human stuff that's all useless. Avoid that mess, Timothy. They call it knowledge and that's false. Stick to the doctrine, Timothy. Focus on the God and the things of God that I have taught you and deposited in your life, Timothy. Not earthly human stuff. Avoid that garbage. It's not able to help God's people know God. And so, there are some who have swerved from the faith by professing their quote-unquote knowledge, their let-me-blow-your-mind-with-what-I-know-about-nothing bluster. They aren't focused on or even aware of God. They're promoting themselves and what they've concocted in their own heads. All they profess is, I, me, mine, to quote George Harrison. 
And the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is not about us. It's about God. It's about the person, the life, and the work of Christ. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about faith and love. Wednesday night, remember? And it's about grace. Which is where Paul ends his letter. Grace be with you. Paul can think of nothing better to wish for Timothy and so many other recipients of his letters than grace. The Greek word is charis and it means, well, it means a lot. Listen to this. Grace means the merciful kindness of God by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtue. I say, yeah, sign me up for that. I want that. I want a lot of that. I need a lot of that. Let me read it again. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. And Paul wishes grace for Timothy as he leaves him to the task at hand at Ephesus and in the rest of his life. Grace is what saved us. Grace will keep us and grace will finish the work. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So teach, Timothy. Lead, Timothy. Love, Timothy. And may grace be the power behind it all. Grace be with you. Amen. And us too, I hope. What a book. They're all good, y'all. So we turn our attention to application from today's passage. In our application, I want to ask the question, what does the man of God look like? What does the man of God do? How, what does the man of God think? How does the man of God feel? What is the description of a man of God? And we're going to look at four ease today the man of God is enlisted you're going to like this one you're going to go, what's wrong with you the second one is entertained the man of God is enlisted entertained he's entrusted and he's enamored enlisted entertained entrusted and enamored First, the man of God is enlisted. We as Christians have been called by God into a life where we are to fight the good fight of the faith. We are to be a warlike people. Our country looked so much differently during World War II. You're like, what? What? When you're at war, things look different. People do things differently. They band together. They pool and share resources. They fight the enemy. They listen to their superiors. They take up weapons. They plant victory gardens. What's a victory garden? As a community got together and said, we're going to grow our own food because the supplies need to go to the men on the front lines fighting the fight. They self-sacrifice. The women stepped up and did things they had never done before in our nation. Enlisted people live life differently. And what's the point of fighting? We fight to win. And in fighting the good fight of faith from what we looked at today, we've got to know what to flee and what to seek. When to say no, when to say yes. Again, Luke this morning in reading from Philippians 3 mentioned this. Paul said, I press on. That's the mindset here when we talk about living as enlisted people. 
The man of God is enlisted. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I may never fight in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Man, you are good Christians. A few of you are. We're soldiers. Well, I don't like that fight and talk. Well, then you're not a believer because we don't have a choice. Paul says this to the Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now there's a ton of stuff here, but I just want to run back through that real quickly. We're not fighting in the flesh. We don't walk in the flesh. We're not warring according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. So quit taking out your anger on other people. But use the weapons that you have to destroy strongholds. Now watch this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where's the main front of this battle, of this war that we're fighting? It's right here between your ears. Because right here is one of my greatest enemies. An undisciplined, unchallenged, running amok mind that wants to focus on everything but God. And as a soldier, i got to be fighting my mind. Be transformed, Paul said, by the renewing of your mind. Fight this fight with spiritual weapons, bringing this in subjection. Taking every thought captive. We didn't mean every thought. Yeah, it did. Being ready to punish every disobedience. In who? In ourselves. I don't punish your disobedience. I punish my disobedience. And when our obedience is complete, we're punishing every disobedience. That's the fight that we're fighting. I am both the hero and the villain in my story. And more often I'm the villain. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Ephesians 6, I mentioned that earlier. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's another enemy we have. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you don't think the devil and his emissaries are launching mortars at you every day, you better wake up. You are under constant fire from the enemy. And what are you supposed to do? Just take cover? I about said something bad. No. No! Wrestle! Put on the armor! Stand! And I love that word, stand. We stand on occupied territory. This ground is won. And we're fighting from victory, not for victory. Stand! And we wrestle, not against flesh and blood. People aren't your enemy. Outside of yourself. But we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present earth, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you're not fighting the heavenly battle, you are being decimated by the enemy. So we're soldiers. We're enlisted. I sat there too long. Sorry. We're also entertained. To entertain means to provide someone with amusement or enjoyment. The man of God knows how to enjoy the good things that God has given him. So a man of God is a warlike man. He's also a man who enjoys things and enjoys things deeply. Watch this. A good bowl of brown beans with cornbread. Now I'm preaching, y'all. Fill in the blank. I found at the store in Food Line in Sophia, West Virginia, a package of pepperoni that is designed to curl up and burn on the edges. I love that. 
And I made some last night. I made some pasta and I put some cheese over it and I put 16 pepperonis. They're small, y'all. And, and, and I, I watched it in the oven as I turned it on broil and I watched those pepperonis go. And they got a little dark around the edges and the grease pulled up in it. And I'm like, amen. And let me tell you what, I enjoyed the heck out of it. I did. And I said, God, thank you for this. Now, my hope is not in pepperoni. But God gives us these things to enjoy. Oh, if we're walking around like a dour sourpuss, like there's nothing good in the world to enjoy, we're missing half of Christianity. At least half. Don't hear this entertained point as a call to more entertainment. I think we need less of that in our culture. But ultimately our joy is in Him. You know, when God gave the law, the Torah, there are seven major feasts and one major fast. Think about that. Get together, eat, have a good time together. Seven times a year. And afflict your soul once. I just can't get past the picture of God in creation thinking about, man, they're going to love this. They're going to enjoy this. And it's a picture of what I have for them in eternity, which is going to be the perfect fulfillment of all that joy. If you think you ain't going to have joy in heaven, you're missing Christianity. We're going to love it. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to enjoy Him. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Ephesians 5.18, Behold, oh, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes, I said Ephesians. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. It's fitting, it's good. Eat, drink, find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The man of God is entertained, enlisted, entertained, entrusted. This is the main point of the passage, I think. We are entrusted with the doctrine. You're entrusted with the doctrine. I'm entrusted with the doctrine. We're entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. Timothy was there to set the doctrine right. We cannot cannot, cannot abide false doctrine. That's part of the battle as well. Your life, my life, is bound up in the gifts given by the very person of God and the doctrine shows us that God. Put your trust in that God as you learn the pure, true doctrine. You can't put your trust in impure, untrue doctrine. Ultimately, how you think of God determines your life, and the doctrine tells us who God is. John Elefante, anybody ever heard that name? He was the lead singer for Kansas. Carry on my way with Dust in the wind, I won't get into that one. but He started singing Christian music. He got saved in his adulthood. And he's got a, 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 a song called The Flame. And he says, he talks about his son being born and how he thinks we must pass the flame. We're the fire on the arrow. And I must pass the flame to my son. At the end of it, his dad is dying. And he says, my dad looks at me and says, we must pass the flame. We have been entrusted with the doctrine, the pure sound doctrine. We must pass the flame. All you people in here with these beautiful babies, you got to pass the flame. That's your primary purpose on earth is to pass that flame to those kids, to give them the pure, sound, true doctrine. And that's what we hope to do here. Paul said this to the Ephesians, oddly enough. 
And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as any val- as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Now remember, he's talking to the elders in the Ephesians. Church. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. <clears throat> Pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which we obtained with his which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So as Paul left the Ephesian elders, he said, they're going to rise up out of your own midst. And I gave to you the whole counsel of God. Take that and give that to the people. And here in 1 Timothy, he's already having to say, get rid of some of these wolves that have been raised up. I have entrusted you, Timothy, with the pure doctrine. So back in 1 Timothy 4, he would tell Timothy and tell us, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Enlisted entertained and entrusted people we are to be. And finally, we are to be enamored. Enamored means just to lose yourself in a love for and a treasuring of something or someone else. And who are we to be enamored with? We are to be enamored with God himself. Let me ask you a question. We're almost done. Do you love God? Do you like God? Hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me, Peter? Lord, you know I phileo you. Do you love me, Peter, like God loves you? Well, Jesus, you know I love you like a brother. Do you? Agape me, Peter. Lord, you know I phileo you. Do you phileo me, Peter? Do you like God? Do you think about Him much? Do you dwell on Him? Oh, we're busy. Who's got time to think about God? Back in 2000, we were trying to plant some disciple-making groups in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. And one of the guys got a hold of the stuff. And he called his brother-in-law. He said, man, I can't even do my job. I'm distracted. He said, what are you distracted by? He said, man, I'm distracted by God. I can't quit thinking about God. Oh, that we'd run the risk of being distracted by God because we're enamored with him. You say, well, we're supposed to be the best employees out there. We are. We are. That's true. But a God who is beyond finding out, a God who is amazing beyond our ability to understand, a God who loves us and shows us grace to the point that He sent His only Son to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can spend eternity with Him in perfect, pure, joyful bliss. I want to be enamored with that God. And you'll never reach the bottom of it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who's given a gift to Him that He might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's be enamored with that God.
And we see that God perfectly through the life of the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was born first. It means he was the source of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through him, through him, to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, to be enamored with the person of Christ. Oh, to be enamored with the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Oh, to be enamored with the person of God. The man of God is enlisted, entertained, entrusted, and enamored. May we be men and women of God today and every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have loved us with a perfect love and you have called us into that perfect love to participate in that love, to share in that love, and to show that love to everybody around us, including you. May we be men and women of God who are more about God than the men and women that we are. And may we love the pure doctrine, fighting the good fight of the faith, pursuing the pure doctrine, enjoying the gifts that you've given us as our knowledge of you increases through the pure doctrine. And may we see you more and more, clearer and clearer, as that doctrine is shown in our faces and turns our focus to your beautiful, wonderful face. Thank you for your help, your love, your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to read this benediction, and then Josh is going to come up and share, so don't just run out. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hang out for just a minute. Josh, would you come on up here?